Mary O'Connell bringing you the latest tech updates, warehouse news, and everything happening in the cold chain world. Not only is there the coolest show in freight, but there is the Running on Ice newsletter that could not be colder. You can subscribe to that on freightwaves.com slash running on ice. Before we get into our guest interview, let's get into some headlines. Recently, a study titled Global Solar Powered Cold Storage Market Forecast came out and provided a snapshot of the global cold storage market. In terms of revenue, the global solar-powered cold storage market is estimated to expand at a compound annual growth rate of 12.4% during the forecasted period, and it is expected to reach a value of over $88 million by the end of 2030. Solar-powered cold storage systems reduce post-harvest loss by roughly 80% and increase the shelf life of perishable foods from 2 to 21 days. Systems for cold storage powered by solar energy typically need less upkeep, and to get the most out of these panels, weekly cleaning is required. One small step for juice, a refrigerated train carrying a total of 390 tons of Brazilian juice in 15 40-foot containers arrived at the Genzhou International Land Port in East China's Zhengzhi province. The juice was shipped from Brazil to the port of Shenzhen by sea and then delivered to Genzhou port through refrigerated containers on the rail. Both ports coordinated with each other to simplify the transportation process, accelerating customs clearance and tracking the entire cold chain process. Officials say compared to traditional road transportation methods, railway transportation not only saves more in labor costs, but is also safer and more reliable. In addition, refrigerated containers are more conducive to keeping juice fresh. U.S. pork exports remained robust in February, achieving double-digit increases over last year in both volume and value, according to data released by the USDA. Beef exports were lower year-over-year, but improved from the low totals posted in January. February pork exports totaled 242 tons, up 11% from a year ago, while export value increased 10% to $596 million. This included a particularly strong performance for pork variety meat exports, which jumped near 40% to nearly 48,000 metric tons, valued at $111.8 million, which is up 25%. And it's the eighth highest amount on record. The Caribbean became the home of the most U.S. pork exports with 223,827 tons of pork. Today, we are joined by Juan Meisel, founder and CEO of Grip. Welcome back to Running on Ice. You were on it before. Thanks for joining us again. Of course. Thanks for having me again. So um, for those who are maybe new to the show or specifically myself, as you were on it with our previous host, Sydney, uh, why don't you give us a brief rundown on your background and kind of how you started GRIP? Born and raised in uh, Colombia, South America, in the uh, Barranquilla, which is the north coast of the country. And when I was in my uh, early 20s, I uh, went to Boston for school. And in Boston, I Googled Boston best e-commerce companies because I wanted to get back into the track of e-commerce and, and shipping stuff in the mail. I had launched an e-commerce company in Colombia a couple of years prior to that, which uh, failed, but I learned a bunch of stuff from there. And when I uh, Googled that, I found a company called CustomMate, which was Mike Salguero's old company, who was CEO at ButcherBox. And I found the guy's email address online and I sent him a cold email and I said, hey, I like what you're doing because it's a marketplace, you know, X and Y recent. I just started this in Colombia a few years ago. And, um, you know, let's meet for a coffee if, if you have the time. 
So he got back to me and he said, hey, I have a couple weeks ago, I'm not doing this anymore. I just started this new company being ButcherBox. If you are interested, let's let's go for a coffee. Let's chat. So uh, we met and, um, you know, it, it was try- I was trying to ship, you know, not perishable stuff in the mail, just regular products like TVs and shoes. But I thought it was just uh, so intriguing. So, uh, you know, a couple of days after we met, I, I joined the company as, as one of the uh, earliest uh, team members of the company. So when I joined, it was all about, hey, how do we sell a box of meat online? You know, how do we get people to to understand the product? How do we get people to understand that they can buy a box of meat online and it being delivered to their houses? So uh, I joined the marketing team and was trying to do everything possible to get the name out there, to get the, the product out there. And we were doing things like, you know, affiliate marketing, uh, paying on commission uh, for sales, Instagram, Facebook, paid media, YouTube, referral programs, every single channel out there to to get people to to know and understand the product. So a company, you know, luckily and, and after some hard work from the team grew exponentially uh, for the first few months. And now our problems shifted from, hey, let's get people to sign up into logistics, into how do we actually ship a box, a box of meat in the mail? So I started asking all these questions that somewhat came uh, naturally to me, and then I, I figured that it was just because of my prior logistics experience in the in the in the past company. But I started asking questions like, "Hey, you know, our volume has doubled over the past four months. Why is our shipping cost static? Like, where's the economy of scale in, in stuff like that?" So, like, you know, other questions like, "Hey, how many box sizes are we shipping with? Like, how are we optimizing for for space inside the box, or how much refrigerant are we adding to these boxes?" So at some point, uh, Mike just showed up to my desk with a pile of papers and he said, hey, here's every single agreement and invoice that we've had in shipping and logistics. Like, here you go, figure it out. So we started running the group at that time and, and it was definitely a, a, a great experience. And, and for us, a, you know, the company grew from zero to $600 million in, in yearly revenue in, in six years. And that was completely bootstrapped. And I mentioned the bootstrap component of it because for that reason, we couldn't really play the game of, Hey, we're going to you know lose money in the first five boxes that we ship, but then box six will make some money. We couldn't really play that game internally, so we basically started getting very optimized in in how to do this, and we had to spend millions of dollars in building systems internally to be able to efficiently ship boxes of, of meat in the mail. Uh, at the same time, I had a few companies reach out to me, uh, would just find me cold on LinkedIn and, and send me a note and say, "Hey Juan, I get my butcher box frozen in the mail. I'm trying to ship." You know, ready-to-eat meals, flowers, pharmaceuticals, cookies, like any product that you can imagine. Like, how are you guys doing this? So I started anecdotally advising some of these companies and saying, hey, here are some of the things that you can do. Here are some of the things that we've tried, like go and chat with this person or like go and, and, and speak with this logistics provider. And it just became apparent to me that like, hey, like, why are these, co- like, why am I anecdotally advising these companies? They should be using a platform or a software or some other company that would just allow them to do this, uh, natively instead of, of trying to, you know, try a few things and, and fail with some of them. And the same at ButcherBox, like it's an amazing brand. It's one of the best sources of meat that you can get your meat from. But like, why do we have to become a logistics platform? That's not the core of the product. So long story short, I stepped down from my role as head of logistics at ButcherBox and started Grip um, early last year. It's it's an amazing team that we put together for this. Uh, we're we're growing pretty quickly. We're headquartered in the heart of Miami's eco- technology ecosystem, which is fun to see since it's exponentially growing too. And uh, yeah, we've shipped millions of boxes through our through our platforms so far. I like it. You have really kind of taken that power, or the basically taken the what happens when you send a cold email 
And it's really just kind of warped into something wonderful for you. And, you know, that's the power of a rough, strongly written email. Well done. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. The, um, you know, one thing takes you to another, right? I, when I started the first company in Colombia, um, you know, almost 10 plus years ago, uh, you know, it felt. So, uh, of course, I was thinking that, hey, I just lost my time, you know, three, four years doing this, but just one thing leads you to another for sure. Yeah. And it's kind of that you have to fail in order to know how to move forward. It's, I'm, I'm a big fan of failing. That way, you know, you learn. It's an easy way to learn. Um, but kind of when it comes to some of those challenges that you can't really fail on, like, you know, you can't deliver like warm meat to people. Uh, what are some of those unique challenges that come with shipping perishable products in the e-commerce space? So I always say that a, a mistake shipping a perishable product in the mail is one of the most expensive mistakes you can make because you automatically have to either reship that box or refund that customer. But then much more importantly than that, you have the the damage of the customer relationship and the lifetime value of that of that of that customer. And like you've already spent, you know, money acquiring the customer through marketing channels and money shipping the box and money making sure everything, you know, hopefully goes right. But if the experience is not right, the chances they go back and buy that product from you, it's extremely low. And that's because because of the perishable nature of the product, it's mostly either food for someone or medicine for someone, or something special like a cake or flowers. So if someone opens that box and that special something that they wanted to either feed their family with or surprise someone or you know make a special occasion out of is damaged, then you just damaged like an entire you know experience or day or months for someone. So that's why the expensive is, the, the 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 mistake is super expensive. Yeah, it's one of those where it's not just like oh. Your swing set accidentally got dinged. We can send out a replacement part. It's like, no, the medicine that you needed to, you know, maybe get through the next month. Well, that's not really workable for you. Or the cake you ordered for your birthday is now ruined and happy birthday. So it's that it's that kind of special nature that it's more than just like, oops, it's, oops a damaged product. It's more of a damaged and entire experience, which is not helpful. <laughs> Completely agree. You mentioned that you're in the Miami kind of tech hub and you're really involved in that. How does technology play a role in addressing kind of some of these concerns and challenges in the space? So in what we figured out with shipping perishables in the mail is that the key is being able to move from a static decision-making into a dynamic decision-making. And what I mean with that is that a static decision-making could mean hey, every time I ship a box to California, it's going to go out with this type of box, this type of insulation, this carrier, this service, and this amount of refrigerant. That's, that's static. But the, the, the challenge or you know, the hard part of what technology allows you to do is taking that and moving it to a dynamic decision-making where you're now making all these decisions based on the actual and, and most current network conditions out there. So this allows you to edit every single one of these variables to increase the probability of success. And this is really something that it's not possible to do without technology because there's just millions of data points that go into it and there's just so much data processing in the, in the backend that uh, this is what really allows you to take that information, that data, and then close the information loop from, from logistics and say, hey, this is, this is how I sent this box yesterday. But this is not necessarily how I want to send this box today or tomorrow. 
because because network changes, condition changes, temperatures changing, there's major weather events across the country. So it's all about how do you take that and how do you create the proper technology to process all these millions of data points and then to 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 impact and to change the way that you're sending that Xbox. I think that brings up a good point. That's something that we've talked about on the show before where um, you know, we can't just rely on John that's in shipping, that's been shipping parcels and cold boxes for 20 years. So he just knows like, oh, this is how much dry ice you need to put in. This is how much, you know, refrigerant or anything that you need. You can't just like rely on the guy that's been doing it for 20 years. And also, to be honest, like he's good, but, you know, he can't predict, you know, super hot weather or some of the other extenuating circumstances. Um, so it's really kind of, I feel like there's been a big technological evolution in that area specifically. That's more of, um, okay, here's your point A, here's your point B. Here's all the different factors that could affect it. And here's maybe how you should package it for the most efficiency and the, you know, not not waste your refrigerant or your dry ice because, you know, that's the more you waste there, the more costs you're going to have down the line. Yeah, totally. And 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 I think that companies have done a a, a good job you know, in, in as you say, hey, that Joe shipping that box of, of something with ice that, uh, you know, they've been doing it for 20 years. Like, that's fine, but but why not use the new technology and, and the new systems out there that just allows you to be much, much more efficient and basically it gives that Joe a superpower of now doing these same decisions but data-backed. Um, so I think it's about, you know, taking what's out there today and, and taking all the technology that has been developed to... Uh, basically give the operation superpowers and now become much, much more efficient and reduce waste and provide a better customer experience. I like that as well because it's also like, oh, your shipping doesn't come to a halt if Joe takes the day off or if Joe gets sick. Like you still have that technology and have that data points to pull from. And also you're making more informed, smarter, wiser decisions that will ultimately help improve your efficiency. And I think that that's just kind of a no-brainer. While there might be that, you know, strong upfront cost of implementing a new system or getting some kind of software for it, I think the long-term financial gain from it is outweighs than any potential of startup costs. So what kind of um, what kind of strategies do you guys kind of use to make sure that, you know, the perishable goods are being transported safely and maintaining that consistent temperature? Um, is there like any, you know, knee-jerk, this is the first strategy we're going to try, this is the first thing, and then if that doesn't work, well, we'll get a little bit more creative from there. So the, the, I think the most important thing here is closing the information loop. So how do you take the last piece of information in the chain, which is what the customer thought about that delivery or the experience of their delivery, and then bringing it back to the forefront of that, of that equation to, to decide how to ship the next box? So we're, we're looking at millions of data points, you know, everything from, hey, where can I ship this box? What type of insulation do I have on hand? What type of carriers and services can I work with? How uh, are every single one of them performing through the different hubs and terminals across the country? Uh, what are the temperatures to the journey, humidity? What type of major weather events are going on? So, um, you know, I just rambled um, across some of the different data points that, that we use. But if you take that and you match it with the customer experience and then you arm the logistics and operations team to make that decision, um, that's definitely, you know, how you start seeing some of those, um, improvements and, and we work with, you know, some of the best, um, you know, cloud companies out there for data processing, um, and technology to allow us to process all these millions of data points and do it on a, uh, on an efficient way. 
So, you know, everything from straight API connection to a bunch of these systems, and then with our customers as well, where they ping us every time they're going to ship a box, and then we return them the most optimal way to do it, um, you know, requires a lot of, of technology and, and innovation uh, in the back end. I like that. It's kind of, you know, it's it's kind of like a customer forward logistics situation where, you know, logistics has long been like the black the black sheep of the of a company and everyone's just like, ah, we don't need to worry about it. But now it's become such a forefront and it's part of that entire experience, specifically in the e-commerce space, like down to the packaging of the box, how it arrives. Like I know personally when I order something and I get a box that's damaged, I'm immediately like, oh, this kind of sucks. And it kind of ruins that end experience for me. Um, but it's something that I think it's, it's nice that everyone's kind of realizing that, you know, your logistics and your supply chain is one of the more important things in an organization outside of the actual product that you're selling. So I think that it's nice to see people actually like taking that customer first, first approach and being like, okay, well, this worked really well. Can we do better? Just that whole, just cause it's not broke doesn't mean that we can't find a better way to, you know, keep it from breaking. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and the customer has high expectations always. Uh, you know, they gave you a credit card to buy some piece of expensive thumping or something that they really needed at their at their houses, and and they have high expectations. So, uh, companies really need to be careful not to break that trust loop uh, with the customer and and make sure they deliver on the product that that they promised. What are some of the more uh, kind of uh, if you feel like sharing? What are some of the more innovative technology solutions that you guys at Grip have come up with to kind of improve and make the more effective uh, e-commerce shipping? Yeah, yeah, totally. So one that I like a lot, uh, and this is just a super small example of, of the stuff that we do is um, like when we have a few options of where to ship a box from and, and you know, everything is like very similar, let's say for this specific delivery location where you have two facilities where you can get to with and, you know, it costs the same, it takes a similar amount of time, you can ship it on the same day. Like when everything is very similar, then we try to look, for example, at temperatures and chances of success from every origin point. And at that point, you're basically shipping it from the place where, hey, it's called this, where the probability of success is the highest. We're going to require less refrigerant to get to that customer. So uh, we're, we're getting really down to to super specific details like that, where um, it, it's really like not possible to do it without technology. Like a human can't really be making all these decisions on a, you know, on a daily or by second basis. And then also if you have a static shipping engine internally that you maybe build with Excel or a few other uh, order management systems out there, like you can't really make these decisions. They're like dynamic as this. So, you know, we look at all these things through the journey of the box and then the network. And yeah, we get down to things as specific as, hey, it's a complete tie between these two facilities. We have the inventory at both places. We can ship it, you know, equally, uh, you know, based on 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 times, based on zones, based on prices, um, based on the different box sizes and, and installations that we have available at these places. But how about temperatures at the origin? Because that's one of the things that, that can vary. Well, I think that's, uh, that's kind of, uh, in the worlds of, that's a big flex. That's a pretty big flex to just be able to be like, yeah, no, we can, we know everything and we know how to keep it at one consistent temperature throughout the whole thing and, you know, keep it, keep everything positive. Um, what's kind of that num- number one piece of advice you have for a perishable e-commerce shipper? Like the number one thing that you're like, this is what people need to be paying attention to. This is what people need to be doing. That's a good question. Um, I would say uh, use grip, but then other than that, uh, I would say, um, move away from average. 
I think that averages are are one of the most like dangerous numbers to hide to to hide behind in in the industry because like if you say hey um you know I'm fine I have an under two percent damage slash thaw rate average and you're just running with that because the number is fine it's you know relatively acceptable then like you're really hiding behind the fact that there might be a specific zip code in the country or a specific you know carrier or service or warehouse where that number is 10 plus 10 plus percent like just for that specific zip code or warehouse or, or carrier or service so i say like move away from the average and look at these specific numbers and pockets across the country in where you can like keep optimizing and keep improving because I'm I'm very sure that if you find those pockets, there's always something that you can do to bring it down. That is probably one of the best things I've ever heard is just a move away from the averages. It's something I would have never thought of because you're just like, oh, it's an average of two. It's fine. But in, within that average, you might have a high and a low. And that's, I really like that. Well done. Thank you. Um, I, and that, you know, it, it's similar to like refrigerant selection, as you were saying before. Like, oh, I ship with an average of 10 pounds. Okay, yeah, like, you know, that's fine. That can get you started. But where do you have to ship with 5, 10, 15, 20, 25? Or maybe where can you get away with shipping zero pounds of refrigerant? And and that's why if you average all out, you might be a 10. But like, how do you get away from the average to find where do you need to add more and where can you get away with adding less? I absolutely love that. That is that is a rock solid piece of advice. Um, in a slightly less rock solid piece of advice way, um, we have a question that everyone that comes to the show has to answer, and I know we didn't have it last time you were on, so we're going to get you with it this time. Is cereal a soup? This is probably a question that would be, uh, answered much better by Chad GPT, but, um, <laughs> the question, it's funny because I would get mad when I was served cereal for breakfast growing up because I'll be hungry by like 9 a.m. again. Oh, 100%. Uh, <laughs> So I have a hate, hate, love, love, hate relationship with cereal because it's also super convenient. So it can get, you know, get you out of the way. But uh, um, yeah, that being said, I would say cereal is not a soup because there's no cooking process involved. There's, there's no, you know, there's no getting it warm. There's no simmering of different ingredients. It's just mixing milk and, and, and cereal. I like it. I'm also team. It's not a soup, but I also I don't really like to put a lot of milk in my cereal. I like like just enough. If I'm putting any in, I put just enough to like eat the cereal with. I'm not a milk drinker. Now, what what do you do first, the milk or the or the cereal? Oh, I put cereal and then milk in because how because you have to know how much milk to put in and once you have the cereal. I agree with you. I I do that as well, but I've been uh, called a weirdo a few times for doing that before. But I'm gonna stick to it. That is the proper way to do it, and everyone else is just, you know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, but some ways are wrong. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Safe. So if anyone wants to reach out about some temperature-controlled e-shipping, um, your cereal as a soup stands, or anything else that's on their mind, where can they find you outside the show? Uh, I'd say uh, reach out to us either via LinkedIn um, uh, or email. You know, my email address is jcm.gripshipping.com. Super easy. Um, and you can find us in LinkedIn, either my personal LinkedIn, Juan Camilo Maisel, or uh, Grip's uh, website on, on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming back and being on the show again. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You can catch other episodes of Running on Ice right here on Freight Waves TV, YouTube, or anywhere else you get your podcast, like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Need more Running on Ice news? No sweat. Or subscribe to the newsletter on FreightWaves.com slash Running on Ice. See you on the internet. Mm-hmm.